This Blitz podcast is brought to you by Bravado Wireless. Available online at bravadowireless.com. The Blitz is broadcasting in HD on your FM dial. Turn your HD equipped radio to 106.9 KHDT HD2. All right, it's 148 here on the Blitz 1170. What's going on? Hope you've had a good day so far here on this Wednesday. Uh, before we hit up the hotline, welcome in the doc. Just saw this story uh, from Fanatics that's been posted. And this will go right into what we're going to discuss here. All of us are very aware, well aware now about the GoFundMe page for the toy drive that DeMar Hamlin was setting up. I still need clarification. Was this a toy drive that he was trying to establish while he was at Pitt or from the early days of the NFL? Because it goes back a couple of years, I know. It's not from this year. Not that it matters, but it was Pitt. just... All right, so he was trying to... 2500 bucks, right? Well, as of... And I haven't checked it, but as of today, um, a little after 10 o'clock, they were already passed six and a half million dollars that have been donated to his toy drive. So Fanatics is donating all the proceeds from his jersey sales that are happening right now to the toy drive. Yesterday, his number three jersey had been the Fanatics' top seller amongst all sports since Monday night. And his blue home jersey has been the top selling amongst all sports on Fanatics. So they're they're buying his jersey left and right, which is awesome. And good on Fanatics with that new uh, market cap that they just got hit with. For, for what their value of a company is. Uh, all right, it's 150 here on the Blitz 1170. Let's welcome in Dr. Christopher Crane from Tulsa Bone & Joint, tulsaboneandjoint.com. Dr. Crane, hope you had a, a good holiday with the fam. It's great to hear you and have you back on the show. Thanks. Good to be here. How was your Christmas and New Year's and all those things? It was, uh, it was laid back. It was good. Uh, I told you that I got COVID and Doc... I'm going through it right now, buddy. Um, this the residual effects from COVID uh, have me to uh, a level of exhaustion where I'm talking a walk around the block. I had to I had to take a two hour nap to recover. Like physically, like I'm not sick, but physically trying to rebound from this and the brain fog. Um, your boy here is fighting through it, as the kids say, <laughs> uh, on on trying to rebound from COVID right now. Yeah, that fatigue definitely lingers. It, it it sticks with you longer than than you're expecting. Even when everything else calms down, it can take a while to get that energy back up. Oof. Have uh, in your experience with people that you've talked to, um, is there like an average time? I know it's probably different with everyone. With my wife, it lasted about three weeks. But I talked to someone the other day that has been going through this for six months and still isn't back. Yeah, it's very very variable, and we haven't really pin down why it'd be a great thing to figure out i mean just the huge range of possible covid timelines and effects and 
some people don't even have symptoms and they get it and they test positive and they, they don't have symptoms. Uh, it's less common than it was at the beginning, but it's still still possible. And and then other people, that fatigue especially, sometimes the cough just lingers. It's frustrating. It, uh, yeah, frustrating isn't the word for it, right? <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think I'm, <laughs> I, 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 I would shake a stern fist at COVID right now if I could. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the, uh, what the Simpsons meme where it's like man yells at clouds. That would be, uh, me for sure, uh, right this instant. Well, you'd have to take a two hour nap after you did it. I know, right? I know, which is not far from the truth. Like 20 minutes after I go up the steps here at work. Uh, all right, let's focus on the scene that was Monday night. You you text me yesterday uh, on our first day back. Um, I don't think that there's any other thing to talk about. Honestly, this is one of the most important things. So as someone that's on a sideline um, every single Friday night helping out uh, with high school football, we've seen scenes that are similar, maybe not the same type of injuries. But, Doc, that is... That that's the ultimate nightmare, right? That is that that's the last thing that you want to have to do in a setting like that, or to have a, a scenario play out like that on a, on a playing surface, whether it's the NFL, whether it's college or high school or even lower. Um, that that's the scariest scene that I can remember in a while. Yeah, I mean that's that is what you don't want to see, don't want to have happen. I mean, you see on the sidelines a lot of people that go down uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their heart stopped and they're not breathing it's what you worry about and prepare for and, and and especially in this particular instance i think it's to me the most notable and commendable thing is how quickly everyone jumped into action i mean they were as much as it was it didn't look when you look at the impact it doesn't look like something that you should be expecting someone to drop it doesn't look like an emergency is about to happen and they were at his side and evaluating him and got going on compressions in seconds and that's what you have to do so i mean if there's any silver lining to this it's that their response their emergency activation of getting everybody in the right place was exactly what they needed to do and so you you hope you never see it and you hope every game that's not going to be what you're going to have to be doing Uh, but when it happened they were they were ready and they were trained and they got on it so we talked a lot yesterday about the emergency action plan Uh, i even reached out to former um, head of uh, university of tulsa athletic trainer um, yesterday uh, who's over at arkansas now dave polanski uh, who was there when Devin Walker uh, had the, the the vertebrae injury at the University of Tulsa and was paralyzed on the surface because uh, he was the first responder that was on the scene. Uh, I talked a lot about not only the medical personnel, but I, I think the thing that needs to be highlighted, circled, and underlined a thousand times is what you just brought up, which is the emergency action plan. Um, without that plan, without knowing what to do, it you are wasting precious seconds that can be the difference between life and death in not every instance, but in an instance like this. Is this an opportunity now for everyone to freshen up and to at least have an idea about what your emergency action plan is now at every single level? Yeah, and I mean, it's it's something as simple as uh, everyone needs to have their part in the plan. It's a team effort. 
you can't have one person that does everything. Uh, but, but the simple questions, where is your AED? Where's your defibrillator? Where is it at? Is it, has it been checked? Are the batteries good? Is it alive? You know, the, the oxygen that they had on him, is there oxygen in the tank? And that's something that in my career I've seen, there was an oxygen tank ready to go. It was just empty. Mm-hmm. And so all of the little details in the plan and everybody knowing what to do is something worth reviewing. This isn't an isolated event. It's rarer in football. If, if this really is the impact-related heart issue that, that they're thinking it might be, uh, that's more common in baseball. That's the kind of main sport we see this in, but it can happen at any other sport with impact. And so it's something that you want to have a well-oiled plan and all of the parts are ready to go. You talked about that specific instance, uh, the impact. Um, so correct me, is it commotio cordis? Is that how you pronounce this? Yeah, that's the that's the Latin for it. And it's just that a impact at the wrong time and the wrong part of the heart cycle of electrical activity, you disrupt it and you hit it at just the right time to disrupt the next beat. And instead you end up with an arrhythmia where the heart's not organized. It kind of just flutters or um, defibrillates. If you look at it, in the um, actual visible, like staring at one heart that's doing this, it kind of looks like worms. It just, the, the heart is not a motion flow. It's just kind of spasming. And so it, it's something that uh, if that's what's going on, it's not, it's not a common thing. There's less than 30 of these each year. And this is something that is much more common in, in younger athletes, almost exclusively male, but not quite, it's about 96%. Um, but the mean age is 14. I mean, this is a typically younger athlete that has this happen. And it's the, it's the cause of about 20% of cardiac sudden deaths in young athletes and in young males. So it's, it's, it's rare. Um, but it, here it is getting highlighted for us on a, very national stage. Uh, and just to kind of underline what we talked about, that CPR, if they start that after three minutes, like that doesn't sound very long, but 180 seconds, if that's how long it takes for everyone to get their act together and get on the CPR and get that started, the survival rate's about 3%. Wow. So you, when you say seconds matter, you aren't kidding. That's- this is a huge deal. That's, to get going as quickly as you can. Well, and that's what I brought up with with Dave Polanski yesterday, who got to Devin Walker first, and I, I was I was asking him the question about the identification process that starts immediately when you get to the individual that's down. Um, you you know we talk about relying on your training all the time, but um, that's an incredibly pressure-packed moment as well. And without the action plan, what plays a part into that along with your training, um, that's the, 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 the entire idea of trying to identify exactly what's going on, knowing that just that time frame and that statistic that you brought up is, is kind of overwhelming, right, to someone that's a non-medical professional to hear that and for them to identify it in that amount of time and know exactly this is what we need to do. Yeah, well, and just even having an ambulance there, which is not a given when you're talking, you know, high school or or uh, more rural coverage or things that you don't always have that EMS available. Uh, but in this case, they did, and that's wonderful to see. And so, I mean, it, it truly, I think he 
getting that circulation back on the field, getting his pulse back and, and getting him care, it just underscores the efforts of the team and how quickly they implemented that. Uh, and that's that's a stressful thing. That's not what you want to have to go through, but to be ready to spring into it at any second, and that, that's the commendable part of all this. Probably a very uh, basic question here, but why is this more common in younger athletes? That's a good question. I don't know that they have a fantastic explanation for that, uh, and it's not exclusive to uh, about 80% of the people that have this are under 18, but there are still a subset of people that are over. Um, my my blind guess would it be would be that it's biased towards the amount of people. Uh, there's probably more younger athletes playing, and it kind of weeds out as you start to get older and older. So just straight up numbers game, there's more high school football going on than college than NFL, and it just kind of numbers wise shrinks down. But it could be a developmental thing as well. Uh, the other part of this too that we had discussed, which is um, not every school has the ability uh, to provide EMS on site. Uh, that's a resources thing, and probably with the size of your school, um, there are there are um, what laws where you have to have specific devices that are within reach on this. But you know, we're also dealing with even on a lower level like this in some in in some form or fashion, right? Resources play a role in this, so. Uh, is there what else can we do um, for for an instance like this? And I get it. I, I know this is kind of like a one in a one in a million shot, like in in certain instances with the low numbers on on something like this. But it still brings up the question about um, not all resources are available to have EMT on site, uh, even at the lower levels. Right. Well, and the the EMTs weren't the. My understanding is the EMTs weren't the ones to initiate CPR. That was the trainers. That's that right. That was the initial people assessing. So that's still the key. You can keep doing CPR while you wait for an ambulance, but the people that are there, whoever that is, needs to have that basic training to keep a heart beating, even if that's you pushing on the rib cage to make it beat. You got to keep that blood flowing. You got to keep that lack of pulse, uh, not a problem. And you need to have that AED, which again, that's, that is sort of the bare minimum for, for, uh, cardiac help. And that's something that you need to know the location of and schools need to have. Uh, and that's, that's a key too. And this doesn't go well without that shock to get rhythm back. And so this is a key as well and that's something you got to have nearby and have it be ready and have the pads and have the right size pads because there's different size for adult versus pediatric and, and just having all the tools is that uh doc on the uh on the uh defib is that something that the general public can get uh, whether certification or even training on i know you can take cpr classes on that but um there's there's a machine like we we have if something were to happen right now, I know where they're at in this building. I don't know if I would know what to do specifically with, with the machine itself. Mm-hmm. So there are uh, training courses that can be taken for basic life support, BLS, or advanced cardiac life support, ACLS. And they walk through not only CPR, but also how to use an AED. And, and to the credit of uh, AEDs, they've gotten a lot more user-friendly in the sense that 
you turn them on and they'd sort of instruct you, okay, put the uh, p- uh, plug the pads in first, then place them on the patient, and then it will tell you to keep doing CPR or not, and it will analyze it. It really kind of has a, a voice that walks you through what you need to do. Now, it's still way more efficient if you already know or kind of yeah. can be working in the right direction, but um, it, they, they are still trying to get more user-friendly so that even if you don't have that training, there's at least a hope. Uh, that it can walk you through the right things. But yeah, BLS and ACLS, uh, especially with BLS, that's not a super long or hard course. Mm-hmm. And that's important information. So I think that's that's probably the entry level and the most easily accessible thing for even the general population, you know, parents or something that want to be a little more certified. Um, that's, that's a good starting point, And I think that's fairly accessible. Well, um, Situations like this always, uh, you know, bring up more questions, um, and now is the time to get answers to those questions about uh, things that you do in your daily life uh, and feeling like you're prepared and having your own emergency action uh, plan as well. Doc, I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. I know it's a the, the subject itself is not one that is great because I can still see those scenes from Monday night, but uh, always appreciate your input, and uh, we thank you for joining us here on the Blitz. Absolutely. We'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. That is uh, Dr. For, Dr. Christopher Crane, or Dr. For, however you want to say it. Dr. Christopher Crane joining us here on the Blitz 1170 from Tulsa Bone & Joint. Check out their website right now at TulsaBoneAndJoint.com. Place is awesome. I've gone there for multiple procedures uh, for my family, and if they're good enough for me to trust them with my daughter, and uh, and wife, then they are trust me, good enough for you. Real quick before we take a time out, because I know we're behind with the with uh, the guests. But Ron Walker over at the University of Tulsa passed this along, and um, Ron rocks. By the way, he said that the Oklahoma Association, uh, Oklahoma Athletic Trainers Association lobbied for the law here because so few schools have access to athletic trainers, but they were lobbying for the Riley Boatwright Act, which is basically you need to have an emergency action plan for the facility, the athletic practices, events, and activities held at all the different school districts and the facilities. And that action plan has maps and directions for appropriate contact information for medical services, a medical administrator who is a current school employee, such as a coach, administrator, or athletic director, define what those responsibilities are, have a list of medical equipment that's nearby, and those need to be posted everywhere and distributed to everybody. And there are a couple of other things that are in here as well, but they know. They they absolutely know, and it's it's important that you do as well. All right, time out. We'll come back. We'll talk a little dogs next here on the Blitz 1170, where I have a very, very important question of our next guest. And, Matt, I don't know how you feel, you Georgian, you, but the question is, Is Brock Bowers underutilized in the Georgia offense? That's next here on the Blitz 1170. Thank you for listening to this exclusive Blitz 1170 podcast from Bravado Wireless.